we're going to talk about foolishness. And in order to do that wisely, I want to read some things to you. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 26.19 is, a fool is the man who deceives his neighbor and then says, I was only joking. Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his emotions, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And there are many, many others. Proverbs 10.23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Proverbs 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. We're going to talk a lot today about foolishness, and it's a dangerous thing to do because fools make us angry. And one of the follies of that is that when we give vent to our anger against foolishness, we can become fools ourselves. So the overarching verse that I want to begin with is Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Remember to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For you must remember that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works we did in our own righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God help us obey you in those verses. Virginia pastor Kenneth Miller has been jailed by a court order in a trial by jury in the state of Vermont. What was his offense? Well, according to the state, he is a kidnapper. What are the facts? Well, he helped a young mother of a little girl and the mother escaped the clutches of a uh, former lesbian lover. I don't mean the woman was a former lesbian. I mean this woman was in a formerly uh, uh, romantic relationship with this lesbian. The court is demanding that the biological mother give her child up to the lesbian lover. Now, if that's not enough to make your blood boil, competent mental health professionals testified in court under oath that the little child of six showed great distress whenever around the ex-lover lesbian. And there was strong testimony supporting the assertion that the lesbian had molested this child. But the judge, whose name is Cohen 
by the way, evidently a Jew of priestly descent, which means his judgment will be all the more severe, said that this lesbian molester was the, quote, rightful mother, and that the truly rightful mother was to hand over the child by court order. Thankfully, there was a Christian hero not far away, Pastor Miller stepped in to help this mother and her little girl escape the molester and the molesting system by aiding this mother to escape the country. She and her child, thankfully, are safe and out of harm's way. Out of harm's way in this context means outside the United States. Isn't that amazing? Harm's way for her would be to be inside the borders of her own country. Public comments on this story are even more infuriating. Quote, Now it's okay for so-called religious people to tear up a family and steal a woman's child away from her, one said. Or, how about this one? Religion ruins everything. Or, what about this one? So this dumb woman turns religious and destroys her family by leaving her vows. Did you get that one? This moral genius thinks lesbian pseudo-marriage vows are binding. Binding to who? Binding for what? So that the lesbian has access to the child she can molest? I'm not suggesting that all lesbians molest children. I'm just telling you what this one did. No, I'm not going to tell you any more stories like this for the entire remaining time we've got together because I can't bear to tell another one and you can't bear to hear it. And I don't want my head to explode and blood to squirt out of my eyes. So I won't say any more of these kinds of stories. But I begin with this one because I can't... uh, I want to try to get across that there's a sort of of numbness of soul that creeps on us unawares until it has rendered us passive and unresponsive to the voice of God. It comes because we're entering an atmosphere of growing evil around us that slowly drains our best energies. At first, it just feels like increasing pressure from all sides. Then, after a while, it becomes depression. Finally, if not resisted and and recognized, it, it begins to weigh so heavy on us from so many different directions that merely human fleshly response becomes utter denial. We just have to push it out of our mind. We want not just to escape, but to find amusement, self-comfort, something. For some, this means giving in to nothing more than sinful and shallow escapism. In normal times, that would be nothing more than a foolish waste of time. Bad, yes, but understandable, I guess. Not excusable, but understandable, maybe But in wartime, as we are in now, that kind of giving in to that kind of passivity becomes a life-threatening, foolish self-indulgence and one that might even be called treasonous to the king that we serve. 
Now, others of us may find we are not just trying to escape the oppressive atmosphere of a dying nation or to entertain ourselves with foolish trivialities. No, we may find something even worse, a resurgence of old temptations to return to former patterns of sin that we've long ago walked away from. Our tired minds don't want to study too deeply. Our tired emotions refrain from the strain and work of real prayer where we ought to be. Our tired bodies long for not just release, but pleasure. So we begin to understand far more fully, if we ever read those words, the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke 21, verse 32 through 36, watch over yourselves carefully. And be sure that you're not overtaken by carousing and drunkenness and the daily cares of life so that that day comes upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come over the face of the whole earth. Watch and pray that you may have the strength to escape through all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, many commentators point out that those words refer to the impending destruction of Jerusalem that would occur 40 years later, and that when Jesus refers to the whole earth being taken by that cataclysm, it refers to the entire land of Israel, not the whole planet. But if this was his word to his disciples, then it's ludicrous to assume that these same words don't apply to us his disciples at the close of the age. The tribulation of Jerusalem was a preview of the entire close of the age. So the warning to them applies to us maybe in even more stark terms. So what's Jesus saying? Well, he's bringing to the foreground of their thinking something we all vaguely know about ourselves. That is, that we tend to want to hide from reality when it gets too difficult. That's no great revelation about that, is it? You know your version of it. I know my version of it. Where do you go when you don't want to think about the impending Roman army? Or as God said to Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 5, if you can't endure the footman, what will you do when the horsemen come? Well, What we did and what we do is we hide from unpleasant reality. This may give us momentary freedom from stress, but in the long run, when the avoided issue bursts onto the scene in ways we can no longer dismiss, what will we do then? In Judge Robert Bork's 1996 book, Slouching Towards Gomorrah, He describes what was then the condition of this country in the Clinton era. Quote, American culture is complex and resilient. But it is also not to be denied that there are aspects of almost every branch of our culture now that are worse than ever before and that the rot is spreading With each new evidence of deterioration, we lament for a moment and then become accustomed to it. And quoting Emile Durkheim, he says, 
There is a limit to the amount of deviant behavior any community can afford to recognize. As behavior worsens, the community adjusts its standards so that conduct once thought reprehensible is no longer deemed so. This is called defining deviancy down. We lower the bar of expected civility and moral self-restraint and decide the new low is now the new normal. But Charles Krauthammer adverse, uh, observed about this statement. He said, uh, it's no longer enough for the deviant to be normalized. No, the normal must be proved to be deviant. At risk of sounding uncomfortably vulgar, this can be illustrated with reference to the present homosexual issue. At the time of Bork, Writing these words, the so-called gay rights movement claimed all it wanted was a place at the table with the rest of society. By the turn of the century, by the end of the millennium, and the beginning of the new one, it became clear that they wanted to own the table. Now it seems they will not be satisfied until everyone is made to bend over the table and be raped by their definition of equality. Bad as that is, what is far worse is the hat-in-hand acquiescing apologetic attitude nearly our entire culture has adapted towards homosexual activism. I did not say it is wrong to be kind and loving and respectful and caring toward individual homosexuals, and I do not mean we should be condescending in our kindness as if we see them as broken, needy sinners in great need of mercy and grace not like the rest of us who only needed a little mercy and grace. Actually, as an aside, I do need to stress, though I cannot pursue it fully here like I'd like to, I don't even acknowledge the existence of homosexual as an ontological state of being, as a species, since I do not define any human being by how they wish to use their reproductive organs then, of course, I define any uh, with homosexual leanings as being just as deserving of respect and kindness as any other person, and in no greater or less need of grace than the entire human race. That's the largest side I know, but I want to make that clear before we go further. I don't believe there are any such things as ontological, biological, homosexual people. I believe they are simply people, like all of us, with brokenness in their souls that need mercy and grace. And so it goes without saying, of course they are given respect and, and, and mercy and love and uh, consideration. But as a movement, it takes on a completely different nature and character, that of a beast. And so the so-called culture war, since the Clinton years, we have followed that exact downward path that Durkheim's thesis describes. But now we are tumbling. No, we're free-falling into the levels which, if allowed to continue, will eventually produce a hell on earth. Once the authority of biblical revelation is set aside or even diminished then all people do what is right in their own eyes. 
This has now reached the point where we are suffering the consequences of the complete rejection of the good of reason. The inability to hold a civil discourse on nearly any subject has divided us and subdivided us as a nation. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot survive, cannot stand. The drive for power has replaced the good of reason and a willingness to dialogue. The drive for power in order to force an agenda and to hell with who is destroyed in the process is what is left of our politics. The twisting of language to mean whatever the speaker wants it to mean at any given moment in order to appeal to the lowest appetites and shallowest sensibilities of a voting population which only knows what it is told by a sycophantic lapdog news media and whose only purpose in life is to get more stuff from the government portends an approaching demise of the United States as a functioning, secure nation. Our southern border is nearly non-existent. The information that we receive from the so-called news media about that condition and that situation is never, never accurate, but is simply a propping up of misinformation in order to uh, accommodate. The lawless Department of Justice who, on the order of lawless president, prosecutes the officers if they arrest illegal aliens. Did you get that? They prosecute the officers if they arrest illegal aliens. The aliens know this and actually tell arresting officers that they will pay if they are uh, going to arrest them. You know, you're going to pay for it if you arrest me. When this is confronted on any level by any person, citizen or government official, the facts are easily swept away by political talk aimed at emotions rather than reality and is resulting in a society swiftly losing its ability to hold together to administer any true justice for truly needy people or to survive as a civilization. Decades of mind-numbing, character-destroying propaganda shoved down the throats of American schoolchildren by a government-controlled, socially-engineered leftist insane asylum called public education has now produced the prized pupil, what Lenin called the useful idiot. Easily managed people who are dupes for the overthrow of Western civilization, the self-indulgent, shallow-thinking, perpetual teenager, controlled by his or her visceral desires and habits, ready to become violent to get whatever stuff it constantly craves and screams for at any given moment. The power to restrain these appetites, to demand that the bodily desires be subjugated to higher, better emotions, isn't even on their radar screen. The very concept of self-sacrifice, submission to true authority or humility in the face of a greater wisdom, these things are completely non-existent in their universe because they have been systematically taught out of them by the educational system. Stupid people who are controlled by their most basic appetites are easily controlled by a nanny government. 
So the removal of any message that might challenge laziness, rebuke wrongdoing, awaken proper shame. There is such a thing at times as proper shame. Or develop the conscience. These things have been the, the willfully extricated from the minds of decades and decades of students. Now we're beginning to reap the full harvest of its fruit. Teacher after teacher that I've spoken with face-to-face in many cities described their typical day. I'll quote one of them. I'm confronted by hostile pre-adult people whose bodies are developing far ahead of their souls, which are not developing at all. I watch them milling about the campus, breaking whatever rule happens to be inhibiting their momentary desire for self-gratification. Smoking, making out under the stairwell. The normal response to any corrective from any teacher is a wordless reply given by their sneering expression. It's wordless not only because they have very limited vocabulary, but because they hold all teachers in such total disdain that exerting of energy to actually speak seems a waste of their resources. Then, with the sneering grin still in place, they continue in whatever direction they were headed when the teacher reminded them there was a boundary. This is the normal daily activity of many teachers. As C.S. Lewis prophetically wrote over 60 years ago of the coming result of progressive education, quote, they will remove the instrument and still demand the function. We make men without chests and expect from them virtue and enterprise and are surprised when they can do neither or manifest neither. Just last week, nationwide news space was given to the insipidly ludicrous proposition offered by some silly government-funded psych study that claimed research had discovered that the practice of apologizing, the practice of telling someone you wronged, I'm sorry, is damaging to the core ego of the offender and that we should not ever say, I'm sorry. But rather, we should press our point all the harder when confronted with opposition or accusation. (laughs) For over 30 years, I've preached and taught from Paul's prophecy concerning the end of the age in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that men and women will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, etc. I, I still... I still didn't have a clue just how bad it would get. And we may not be at the bottom of the drop yet. I've stated often that there's a kind of divine chastisement that is sometimes placed on a nation that can be best described as a, quote, supernatural form of stupidity. By supernatural, I don't mean that normally functional, productive, and morally sensitive citizens suddenly come under a spell sent from the spirit world that turns them into moral morons. No. By supernatural, 
I only mean that there is a divine edict behind the natural progression of events that have come slowly but surely into position in a culture in order to turn that culture stupid. It's a bit like Pharaoh refusing to allow the children of Israel to leave Egypt. That's not a supernatural thing. It's just Pharaoh's natural arrogance. He hardened his own heart over and over until there came a supernatural moment in that willful hardening that God Almighty said, all right then, since this is the route you have chosen, I will place my own divine power behind you in that choice. I will harden, the Hebrew word is strengthen. I will strengthen you to do the very thing that you have hardened your own heart repeatedly to do so that you will have no ability to even see your folly, much less to choose wisely a different direction. Pharaoh, thy will be done. So do you see that we as a nation and the entire West, including Europe, New Zealand, Canada, we in the West are in that place with God. That's right where we are. When Israel was in this place, God said to them through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give them laws which they cannot live under. Obviously meaning that he would stop sending his grace to bless them with wisdom and bless their outcomes, but would simply allow them to go their own way, choose their own wills, and reap the full inevitable bounty of their stupid choices. Like Romans chapter 1, which is of such vital importance that it deserves an entire detailed study on its own, which I hope we can do soon. Or like Second Timothy chapter 3, which we have examined previously, but again, not in the detail it needs. We see in both these chapters a similar reference, that God comes to a point where he says, I will turn you over to the very thing that you are willfully choosing. I will, I will not pour out upon you the prevenient grace and general uh, mercy that uh, I pour out when uh, he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He blesses the just and the unjust. There can come a point where you become so in opposition to God that this general mercy begins to be lifted and you're given over to the results of your own willful choices. That's where we are in the West, and it's just beginning. God is so loving, so merciful and patient that he does pour out regularly by common grace all that is good and right and just and true, as well as physical support, rain, crops. All that a nation needs in order to move toward him in hopes that that nation will come to truly seek him and honor him. This is Acts chapter 17, verses 25 through 28. This is his general automatic attitude of heart towards all people. But what happens when a people not only openly reject 
this grace, but do so after knowing the fruit and goodness of it and enjoying its benefits. As Francis Schaeffer said, and as I've spoken repeatedly, it is far worse for a people who knew and forgot than for a people who never knew. Is there any hope for such a people? Well, as the going saying is often heard, as long as there's breath, there's hope. I think that is generally true. But I would not want to bank on it. It must not be taken as some guarantee that as long as there's a pulse, we can push our boundaries as far from God as we will and then run back to him just at the moment of final breath. Because there's a developing state of being that is going on in our choice making. We are becoming more or less able to respond to his call. Since that is true, it becomes an act of mercy when God begins to remove the protective barriers against calamity which a nation has enjoyed once that nation has reached the point of where we in the West are. This goes for England, America, Canada, New Zealand, all of the West. When God's just judgments are in the earth, the people learn righteousness. Isaiah 26, verse 9. David says in Psalm 119, on a personal level, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I've kept your word. We know we are under this very corrective chastisement in the West. Many of us may be experiencing this also in our personal lives, as David mentions in the psalm I just quoted. I can say honestly that every good change I've ever made in my life has been the result of painful, afflicting, corrective experience. But even so, I don't think every good change has to be that way. I'm just extra hard-headed. But I have learned from my mistakes enough to begin to learn from other people's mistakes instead of mine. And in that same psalm, 119, verses 98 through 108, David celebrates the gift of God's wisdom that comes to him through the Torah and his relationship with God. And he says that he's not only wiser than his enemies, but wiser than his own teachers. God loves to pour out wisdom, both practical, good, common sense type wisdom, and, which is the opposite, by the way, of the spirit of stupidity, and creative, inventive type wisdom. Proverbs 8, verse 12 speaks of witty inventions. God loves to pour out insight and, and uh, invention. And uh, that's happening right now in many, many circles. Uh, many Christians are receiving supernatural wisdom and insight into inventions and uh, uh, business issues and creative enterprises uh, that are wonderful things. So if we're taking this seriously, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, are we walking in the light we have, or are we allowing the increased pressure around us to dull our own discernment, or even worse, pull us backward into lesser things? If the answer is less than good, 
then the first thing we must do, and do it now, is to repent of allowing ourselves to be pulled in that direction. Now, you may not even 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 thought about it until right now. Maybe you haven't been awake enough to notice the slow, gentle pulling away or indifference or laziness or uh, filling your time with innocuous things that seem innocuous until you realize they are poisoning you for what is valuable and good and true. Now, repentance does not always require deep sorrow. Sometimes it's just a matter of waking up and grasping the truth we've allowed to slip away. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, all the way through chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews takes us through what is called the hall of fame of faith in honor of those who have gone before us, some through great and terrible trials, but still through. And he says then in verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, seeing all these people have gone before us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of hindrance and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us also run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? By looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not become weary and faint in your minds. A few verses previously in Hebrews 11, he said he had spoken of how Moses endured the evil of Egypt by, quote, seeing him who is invisible. I love that phrase, seeing him who is invisible. So the next thing we've got to do after we shake ourselves out of our lethargy and self-pity and self-indulgence or whatever it is, the next thing we must do is uh, look up. It's not enough to turn from, we turn to. And what do we turn to? We see him who is invisible. We look to Jesus, the beginner and the completer of our faith. Or as Paul said it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your affection, your imagination, one translation says, set your imagination on things above and not on things of earth, for you are dead and your real life is hid with Christ in God. Therefore, put to death, deprive of power, your fallen appetites that bend toward the mere earthly. For by doing this, this is how we overcome the world. We become against the world for the world's sake. I had a really interesting and enjoyable conversation last night with one of my sons about this whole question of, uh, you know, he was just saying, you know, why, why is there such a pull downward on us? And why is it always seemingly 
centered in idolatrous sexual stuff. Well, it's a whole teaching to, to, to go off on, on the answer to that, but the, the shortest answer I can give you and in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, where it says that God breathed into a man the breath of life and man became a, a, a living soul, the King James translates it. Hebrew doesn't say a living soul. It says a living creature. The same thing it says about fish. The same thing it says about other animals. It just says that they became a living, living creatures. What makes man different is not that there's some special word used in Hebrew to delineate his higher state of uh, existence. But the Hebrew text is seeking to underscore the fact that man is animal. We, we are physical, earthy animals. Then God breathed into that animal form the breath of life, and man became a being that could speak and worship and symbolize and think on the scale of the imagination. And that's why Paul, thinking in those terms, is saying here, set your imagination on things above, not on things of the earth. This is direct reference to what he says in Romans chapter 1. They worship the creature instead of the creator. They they let the, the pull of the downward force of the earth and the fallenness of the earth and the, the, the stoikikos, the elemental spirits of darkness in the universe, pull man, uh, pull what's called in Hebrew the yitzar uh, hara, the, the evil inclination. The yitzar tov is the good inclination. The yitzar hara is the evil inclination. Paul is saying in Romans 1, and he's saying in Colossians 3, you have the power because of the God-breathed spirit that is in you that makes you able to speak, able to worship, able to turn your imagination upward toward God. You're able to overcome the Yitzar Hara and, and turn it into the Yitzar Tov. You're able to do that by what you choose, what you will to worship, what you will to focus on. Because men who turn away from God begin to worship the creature instead of the creator, their, their visceral, biological, animal appetite takes them over and they are pulled down. This is why they end up in Romans 1 uh, in the worship of the creature beginning to turn away from the opposite sex, which requires giving and serving and caring, not just sex, and they turn toward their own gender for animal lust and pleasure. That doesn't mean that same-sex relationships don't have some affection in them. Certainly they do, but the overall spirit of homosexuality is one of unbridled lust. This is why, I don't know if any of you know this or not, but you need to know it. This, so, this, this ridiculous concept of same-sex marriage. Do you know that in many of the, not all of them, but in many of the so-called same-sex marriage ceremonies, there is a, uh, a contractual agreement that uh, they will be open marriages. Now, 
How, how oxymoronic can you get open marriage? Living dead is a, a more realistic phrase than open marriage. The very nature of marriage is one man and one woman bound together by covenant relationship before God. And the exclusive, the exclusive nature of that relationship constitutes marriage. So when you, you, you automatically negate the whole idea of marriage when you say it's going to be an open marriage. Well, it's just a stupid business agreement is all it is. But the reason they, they have to have open marriages is because the nature of homosexuality is, is a variety. There has to be variety. Uh, you know, it's not, I'll get bored with, uh, no matter how much, it's, it's one, one lover and many sex partners. So the exclusiveness is toward my love. I love you, but I've got all these other people I want to use. Just, it's howling at the moon insanity. Anyway, some of you may be finding yourselves in a place you've never been before. A place where things that used to bless you, inspire you, move you, seem to no longer touch you at all. You feel bereft. You wonder what's happened. What's wrong with you? Are you in depression? Is it some kind of demonic oppression? Songs that used to move you to worship no longer touch you. Activities that used to excite you seem dull and empty. <coughs> What's wrong? Nothing. Nothing's wrong. In fact, something's really right. God is removing the prompts that used to be good things that helped you toward the best thing, Him. But now some of us are being called to a higher place toward Him. All of us are called there, but some of us might be at this place before others get there. He wants to remove the props, good as they were in their time, and draw you to him by nothing other than the sheer reality of his person. Can what was a blessing actually become a weight, a hindrance? Yes, it can. I remember once Mary and I had a rare evening alone together at a period of our lives when any such night like that was just a a treasure. We were so busy. I wanted to spend it listening to all our old favorite love songs and sitting in a candlelit room together, swimming around in the luxury of emotions and memories and music. That's not what she wanted to do. She needed to talk. Above all, she just wanted face-to-face, uninterrupted, unhindered communication about all kinds of issues and problems that had been stacking up. But not, not all just problems, just, just to talk. We were just too busy to address so many of them, and they needed to be unstacked. I wanted to float around in romance. She wanted real, honest, face-to-face contact. I wonder sometimes if we want the emotional feelings of what we call worship while not allowing God himself to have access to us. 
And so some of you may be at a place where all of the props have been knocked out from under you and nothing seems to have any value or or preciousness or motivation. You love your family. You love your friends. You're not going to just go off in an emotional deep freeze inside. But nothing seems to move you. Here's the secondary things that moved us toward the primary thing becomes a hindrance to the primary thing if we begin to long for it more than the primary thing. And so they become idols. If we are moving further up and further in, if we are drawing closer to God, if he who has begun a good work in us is bringing it to maturity, if Jesus, the author and completer of our faith, is working in us to bring us uh, to uh, the fulfillment of Proverbs 4, the path of the just shines brighter and brighter till it reaches perfect noonday, then it's perfectly right that there'll come a point where the secondary things no longer help us toward the primary thing, and we have to go straight to the primary thing without the secondary support. We begin to love God strictly for himself. We begin to seek God because we long for God himself with no organ music, no Christian music, no pop music, no whatever kind of music you're into, no no Messiah, no Christmas, no warm fuzzies, no great worship service. Everything loses its taste and you cry out for the living God. My this is what the psalmist was going through in Psalm 63. My my heart longs for you. My soul searches for you in a dry, weary land where there is no water. Thus have I beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. O God, you are my God. Well, after we've repented of our deadness, after we've set our heart toward God and pursued Him and longed for Him to be our primary focus, after we've done all those things, we've laid those foundations again and returned to a solid place to stand. Then number three, what do we do next? We listen for God's direction. We we get new orders. Who can I send? Who will go for me? It is vital that we listen in his presence and receive from him our marching orders for this present time. I've referred repeatedly lately to Psalm 110. Your people shall make of themselves a freewill offering in the day you gather your army. Well, that's now. See, the plan of the devil is found in the book by the devil's worshiper, Saul Alinsky. The book is called Rules for Radicals. This is Barack Obama's handbook for life. This is his Bible. See, Obama's Bible is not the Koran, and it's certainly not the Bible. His Bible is Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. By the way, Alinsky dedicated that book to Lucifer, whom he called the ultimate successful radical. 
In this book, which Obama seeks every day of his life to obey, Alinsky offers such gems of wisdom as the following. If your enemy brings a knife, you bring a gun. If your enemy reports true information on you or your aims that endanger your success, respond by a total all-out attack on his character. And it doesn't matter if the accusation you make against him is true. Just make it stick. Yeah, Lucifer would be happy with these methods. In fact, he invented them, didn't he? And then finally I'll cite the third thing uh, about uh, rules for radicals. Overload the system. In other words, create so many problems in so many areas of life by setting in motion so many evil schemes Create so many foolish scenarios by wrong and uh, unsuccessful choice making that is purposefully set in motion to create confusion, collapse, and ruin. So that not only will the population be overwhelmed with trying to cope with all the problems at once, but the population will also become so jaded at the total lack of accountability, the outlandishness of the obvious lies told, and the audacity of those in government who are perpetuating such open, obvious evil, that they'll simply not know what to do about this or that most recent outrage, and will finally do nothing about any outrage and will simply cease to even become outraged altogether. They will say, to hell with it all, get a pizza and watch the ball game. And as a result, their only words that have any reality to them, to hell with it all, that'll be the, the word that comes to pass, because evil triumphs, hell triumphs when good people do nothing. Well, what Lucifer and Alinsky and Obama and his ilk do not count on is that out here, here and there, are people who are not allowing themselves to become overwhelmed by anything, much less the system. The only thing we're overwhelmed by is the loving goodness and presence of Almighty God whom we focus our attentions on and we consider him and look to him as in the verses we cited from Hebrews. We become free from the spirit of this age and are then able to hear commands from our king. We do what we hear him say. We don't try to get involved with every battlefield keep up with every news broadcast, seethe with useless anger over every outlandish evil perpetrated by this present system. We don't try to run around putting out all the fires in people's lives. We No, we wait. We listen. Then we obey what we hear him command us while we were still and listening in his presence. And when enough of us are doing that, 
a saturation effect takes place that begins to counter the seeming takeover by the evil of the entire world. We regain our salt. We begin to shine again our light. We are given supernatural wisdom that is manifestly the opposite of the spirit of stupidity. We don't operate under the chastising judgment of God because we have repented. Therefore, we're actually able to operate outside a otherwise disintegrating, self-destructive system. And when you're able to operate outside the spirit of the of a self-destructive system, you become free to move in the opposite spirit of that system and actually uh, will prosper in the midst of what looks like disintegration. I didn't say you wouldn't suffer. I didn't say you wouldn't have conflict. I didn't say there wouldn't be what seems to be on the earthly level uh, dangers, clear and present dangers. But we become Jesus' hand extended instead of being seen and hated as the religious right. We begin to transform the nation, one precious soul at a time. They will say to us, as the pagans said of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Surely this people is a wise and understanding people. Where did they get this wisdom? Why do their marriages work? Why do their lives stay stable? Why are they never never afraid? Why are they not angry at everybody? What nation is there so great who has God so near to them as the Lord is in all that they call upon him for? So let's summarize. In the face of this present crisis... Have we gone into lethargy and depression and have we indulged ourselves in entertainments or in escapisms or even in sin? Stir up yourself out of the lethargy, out of the depression, out of the impotent anger, out of the self-indulgent escapism. Stir yourself up, number one. Number two, repent. Repent of unbelief because that's what put us there. If we're there, it's because we're operating in unbelief. Our eyes are on the circumstances instead of the Lord, and we're operating in the spirit of the people who were afraid to go in and take the land. We see giants everywhere, and our eyes are not on the Lord. They're on the giants. Number three, put yourself purposefully and regularly in the presence of God and in his word. I'll tell you, if there's ever been a time you need to be soaking yourself in the Word, gathering scriptures that apply to your situation, especially scriptures like Psalm 94, which speak of how the crooked governments are temporary by their very nature. They can't survive because they dishonor reality. And let me say in closing with reference to that, Several days ago, I was in prayer and I saw a vivid picture in my mind. The earth was like an egg, cracking in every place. People were running around screaming and crying and trying to hold the egg together as if the shell was all there was worth saving. And the people of God were indifferent to the ultimate loss of the shell because they were focused more on what was emerging out from underneath the shell. 
the breaking up of this present system is no great loss unless you are like the people of Revelation 18 who weep and wail over the fall of Babylon because that's where your treasures are. But we're not tied to this present evil system. In fact, we're openly against it for the sake of the people who are seduced and enslaved by it. So with our priorities rightly aimed at obeying and our hearts purified from idolatry and our will set to obey, we say, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, let the kingdoms of this world crack so that they will then become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah. We are a free will offering to you in the day of your invading power. We shine brighter as the dark grows darker. Lord, grant this to be so for us. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening.